Most of my friends and some of my family members don't always believe everything I say. Actually, that's not true. None of my friends and none of my family members believe anything I say. I don't know where I got this reputation. Actually, that's a lie. I do know where I got this reputation. My history of skirting the truth started fairly early. I was never so careless as to lie to my mother with frosting all over my face. But some of my earliest memories of my mother are her quoting Numbers 32-23 to me, Be sure your sins will find you out. As I lay over her lap and she rhythmically and forcefully applied her hand to my bare hinder parts. And after 21 of these spankings, it became a habit for her, and we spent much time in that position. I've shared one of my most vivid memories of telling a lie with you before, but it's been quite a while, so I think some of you may not have heard it. When I was eight years old, my family moved from California to Grand Junction, Colorado. My father, who was an orthopedic surgeon, did most of his surgery at St. Mary's Hospital, a fine Roman Catholic institution. And on occasion, I would accompany him to the hospital when he needed to make rounds on his patients. I would wait for him in the doctor's lounge where there were medical magazines, a television that usually didn't work, or at least I didn't know how to make it work. And even when it worked, it only had one channel. And sometimes there were snacks. Well, one night, as I had been in there for a while and was getting bored and thirsty, I decided to sneak out into the hallway and down the aisle, down the hallway, to a drinking fountain. As I walked down and got a drink and raised my head and turned, I met a woman who looked something like, am I going to have the slides? I sort of need the slides. I apologize for this. <laughs> That's all right. This will be a different experience without the slides.
we can go ahead now. These were working before, I'm sorry. We, we, we planned this all as well as we could. Anyway, back to my story. As I lifted my head from the drinking fountain and turned, I saw walking down the hallway a woman dressed all in black and white with a hood over her head. I was eight years old, remember? I didn't know what this was. It was a sister of charity, uh, a nun. Now, I have friends who were raised as Catholics, and I have numerous relatives who also were raised as Catholic, who have told me that even for them, seeing a nun could be an intimidating thing. But for a little Adventist boy, who had already by the age of eight heard stories about nuns and Catholics and some of their plans for us, I was terrified. She initiated what she thought was a very friendly conversation with several very easy questions. Are you Dr. Johnson's son? You just moved here, didn't you? How do you like Grand Junction? And then she added, and where do you go to school? Now, to my little eight-year-old mind, this was clearly my time to bear witness to the, my faith. As a proud and heretical little protester against the might and majesty of the Sea of Rome, I looked her squarely in the face and said, I go to St. Joe's. My neighbor was a Catholic who went to St. Joe's, and I thought it would be very safe to join instead of fight the crowd. So why should you believe anything I have to say today? You shouldn't. The key text, whenever I preach, or for that matter, whenever anyone preaches, should be 1 Thessalonians 5.21. This is going to be very interesting as I have to try to remember what these texts are. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 5.21, which says, Test all things, prove all things, question everything, and keep that which is good. This is not just for when we're dealing out in the world. This is for when we're dealing with each other, when we're in Sabbath school, when we're listening to the sermon. Everything must be tested, and then we keep that which is good. Our current series is entitled Wisdom That Works, and today's sermon is focused, as Robin read, on Proverbs 1, 20 through 33. In summary, it says that wisdom is trying to get through to the people, but they will not listen. A calamity is going to smite them, and when it does, wisdom will mock them and laugh at their distress, so they should listen. 
In reading over a variety of translations of this text, words like wisdom, knowledge, truth, belief, and insight were all used, sometimes interchangeably. In any discourse, I think it's important as you start to define your terms. So let's begin with truth. For those of you who have great imaginations, picture with me on the screen two large circles that overlap. One circle is called belief. One circle is called truth. And in the overlapping portion is wisdom. Now, as you think about those two circles, only a portion of those overlap. What that means is that a great deal of what you or your church or your country or anyone believes is not true. There is only a portion of what you believe that actually matches with truth. On the other side, there is a great deal of truth that we do not know, that lies outside of our wisdom and beliefs, that we are continually striving to learn about, so that we can enlarge that portion of the circles that is wisdom. Most people seek their truth from sources that they already know agree with them. If I had a slide, this would be where I would show you the logos of MSNBC, CNN, Breitbart News, Fox News, and the BBC. People tend to be drawn to one of those to listen to their news, and it's usually one that they already agree with, one that makes them feel comfortable, one that supports their beliefs or their political stance. And listening to a different one usually enrages people or makes them angry. It feels good to have your own opinion validated by well-known national sources. But more and more, we are finding that there is no compromise, no discussion. The political polarization in this country leaves no room for nuance or subtlety. The truth is so obvious to everybody that if you don't see it, if you don't agree with me, you are not just uninformed or misinformed, you are either stupid, or crazy, or evil. This can very quickly lead to what Jonathan Rauch in his brilliant book, Kindly and Quieters, defines as the fundamentalist principle. And by fundamentalist here, he means the basic principle of one way of thinking. And the fundamental principle, fundamentalist principle is he who would deny obvious truth should be punished. So, what is truth? Although Pilate was a weak and vacillating man, his question is an important one. What is truth? 
If our wisdom depends on finding truth and mixing it with our beliefs, it's very important for us to find the truth. One of the reasons our country and our church is so divided is that there are at least two major ways of seeking truth. One of those I already mentioned, the fundamentalist principle. The other is called the liberal scientific method, not liberal in the political spectrum, but basic meaning open-minded, that you are open to new thoughts. The very foundations of these two different ways of thinking are violently opposed to each other. Fundamentalism as an intellectual style is the strong disinclination to believe that you might be wrong and you know you are right because you have an oracle, a prophet or a priest, or you have a text, a holy text like the Bible or the Koran that has given you the truth. The one who knows the document best is the authority for the group. And those who know the truth decide who is right, what is right, and they go about in society trying to nail down their truths. The liberal scientific method, by its very nature, denies the legitimacy of any fixed truth or special authority, even in principle. It is an error-seeking system, and disagreements are settled not by finding what the oracle or the word says, but it's found by pulling in more players, pulling in people, with contrasting ideas and with new observations. It's a beehive of shifting beliefs and arguments and alliances, and it breaks up and rearranges itself a million times a day. To some people, it's a very uncomfortable world. It is much more comfortable to nail down your truths. Adherence to these two different methods of seeking truth drive each other crazy. The problem with the Adventist culture is that we have early in our lives been raised under the fundamentalist method. The truth has been given to us by an oracle or a holy word. And then when we go off to college or to the university or sometimes even to high school, we are taught the scientific method and we question things. I had the unfortunate pleasure of being raised in a family where my mother lived in one world and my father lived in the other world. No wonder I am so mixed up. It was interesting to try to, thank you Rebecca, it was interesting to try to bring those two together and to make sense. And it is still a challenge to our church. A great many of members of our church live in one world or the other or somewhere in between trying to figure out what is knowledge, what is truth, where does wisdom come from. Suffice it to say that it's a combination of these two.
When I was an early teen, one of my classmates' fathers came to Sabbath school with a gun, a pistol, and a pail of sand. He held the pistol over the pail of sand and said, I'm going to pull the trigger. Do you believe the pistol is loaded or not? We then had about a 10 or 15 minute discussion and argument back and forth in class trying to answer that question. There were arguments such as no one would bring a dangerous loaded gun into Sabbath school or he's just crazy enough that he might. And we were split, most people believing no. It's illegal to shoot a gun in, inside the city limits anyway. He would never do this. Some, however, thought that he might really do it and shoot a bullet in Sabbath school. He then pulled the trigger and shot a bullet into the pail of sand. The noise was deafening in a small Sabbath school room. In fact, the whole church came to see what was going on. I'm sure he broke the law by discharging a weapon within the city limits, but he had a lesson for us, and his lesson was this. What you believe has no bearing on the truth. Whether you believe or not that I'm going to shoot this gun, whether you believe there's a bullet in this gun, has no bearing on whether I really am going to do it and whether there really is a bullet in this gun. That fact is still true. What you believe does not make truth true. Truth stands outside, and we, as we work to learn and to gain knowledge and to grow those two together, have to alter our beliefs, change our beliefs, or be left behind. But let's move on to wisdom. Last week, Pastor Jay, quoting Pastor Jessica, I believe, showed us a slide that showed that knowledge plus experience equals wisdom. So going back, belief and truth form knowledge, knowledge and experience form wisdom. Once again, much of what we know and much of what our experience is does not lead to wisdom. It's those two intersecting circles again. A portion of it becomes wisdom, but there is a lot of experience over here that does not add to our wisdom. And there's a lot of knowledge over here that we never gain access to that adds to our wisdom. So no matter how wise we may feel we are or how wise we may feel our church is, there are worlds of experience and knowledge outside of our small bit of, of wisdom. In numerous places in the Bible, the First Testament and the, Old, and the New Testament, wisdom is given the anthropomorphic characteristics of a woman. Here in Proverbs, it talks about the woman who is obviously able to do things like a human being. She cries out, she speaks, she walks in the, in the city um, public space, she reaches out trying to get uh, attention of the people who are not listening to her. 
She mocks those who disregard her. Throughout the Bible also, wisdom is identified with the Holy Spirit, which at times is characterized as a dove or sometimes as oil. But, and here I will not have time nor the knowledge to look up what my slides would have shown you, knowledge and wisdom, we are told in the Bible, comes from all three of the members of the Godhead. God gives wisdom. James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives liberally. We're also told that the Holy Spirit brings wisdom to us. And we are told that Christ is made our wisdom. So all of the Godhead wants to expand the amount of wisdom that we have, both as individuals and as a church. One of the stories in the Bible that deals with wisdom and how wisdom can be used is found in the story of the ten virgins. As you recall, they were all waiting for the bridegroom to come for the wedding. And they all slept when the wedding and the coming of the bridegroom was delayed. When he finally did come, five of the virgins, who were the wise virgins, held, had oil in their lamps and were able to go with him into the festivities. The other five, the foolish virgins, did not have any oil, and they were left out in the dark. And as one unfortunate pastor once said, let us hope we are all not left sleeping with the foolish virgins. This story implies some rather important points. Either God, rather capriciously, plays favorites by giving some people wisdom and withholding it from the others, or although God does send wisdom, we somehow have a role to play in obtaining it. If what we've said so far is true, then by choosing our experiences and gaining the right kind of knowledge, by doing that we can increase our levels of wisdom and, like the five wise young ladies, be better prepared when either the bridegroom or the storm comes our way. In a similar way, God cannot give you experiences or fill your mind with Scripture in a way that forces you to be ready. You cannot force oil into a closed vessel. We are told that only those who are diligent students of the Scripture will be gaining the kind of knowledge and experiences that leads to wisdom so that we are prepared for the storm that is coming, or for the bridegroom when he comes. Here is where I would love to have shown you a picture that says, you cannot force oil. Thank you very much. So, <clears throat> thank you. I still can't see what you're seeing, so I'm going to have to, in faith, believe that they're going to move things along. But this, by spending time in the, in the Bible, by spending time with the experience and the Scripture, is where we can gain knowledge. God also will not send anyone special, special messages that differ from what He has already revealed to us. 
Next slide, please. Even the work of the Holy Spirit on the heart is to be tested by the Word of God. The Spirit which inspired the Scriptures always leads back to the Scriptures. So what is the purpose of wisdom? Why does it matter how wise we are? Next slide, please. Doesn't the Bible teach us, next slide please, teach us that all we really need to do is love. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. This is a full fulfillment of the law. Isn't that really all we need? Do we really need more wisdom, more knowledge? Next slide, please. Well, there's a storm coming. Now, some of us may lose out on being around when the storm comes. That's a possibility. And growing up as an Adventist youth in the 60s and 70s, we spent a lot of time focusing on the storm that was coming. We learned about the beasts of Daniel and Revelation. We memorized the 2300-day prophecy. I didn't memorize this next chart, but I remember looking at it, and I remember memorizing charts that were very similar to this chart. Now, however, this has become a t-shirt that is sold online as a way of mocking some of the history of the Adventist church. Current events in those days were viewed through the lens of last day events. Everything that we did, everything that happened historically was focused on the last day. When John Kennedy, the first non-Protestant president, was elected, we knew that the end was near. In 1965, when Pope Paul VI visited America, the first pope to ever do so, we had special prayer meetings in church. I did not believe I would ever live long enough to get my driver's license. I knew I would never live long enough to get married. Retirement was a fable for non-Adventists to worry about. Jesus was coming soon. Next slide. And it was our job to get the world ready for him. Or was it? Or is it? Is our focus to be on the second coming of Christ and our salvation? Or are there more important things that may come first and may need to be focused on differently? We're told that a focus on our own salvation smacks of selfishness. That when I am focused on whether I am going to be saved or not, and I am focused on the terrors of the day of Christ coming, it leads me into a bad relationship with my God. I fear instead of love. I focus on myself instead of others. And I'm going to say something that you may or may not find palatable. 
I believe that in addition to preparing the world for the second coming of Christ, we are also supposed to be preparing the, Lord, the world for something else. First, though, let me tell you another story. Earlier this week at my work, we had a special training session where all of the leadership of our department got together and we were learning on change management, which is always fun. Our facilitator had an illustration that he showed to us that I found very interesting. He said, I'm going to teach you the way early people, one of the first ways early people learned how to count. It's a symbolic way. And I'm going to use these four markers, and he had four different colored markers, to illustrate to you the way early people learned to count. He put the four together, they, they snapped together, and he said, I'm going to put this, this stands for number one. I'm going to show you what two, three, four, five, and six are, and when you've figured out what the pattern is, raise your hand and tell me that you've figured it out. He then pulled the four apart into two, and he put down two lines of the markers, and he said, two. He then picked those up, broke it apart again, and made a triangle with, with three of them, with one head, two on one side, and he said, three. By this time, somebody in our group said, I've got it. He came up, put the four in a square, and said, four. And the facilitator said, no. He then took the four markers, and he stood them on end, around the, the top of the table, and he went, four. Now somebody else said, I've got it. And he came up, and he put the markers in just a haphazard thing and said, five. What the facilitator was doing was distracting us with the markers while he said, one, two, three, four, five. This is the way early people learned to count. One, two, three, using the fingers. The markers were a total distraction, and we were focusing on the markers. This is what a good magician does also, is they draw your attention away from what they're really doing and have you focus on something else while they pull the rabbit or put the rabbit in the hat, whatever. We as Adventists and we as Christians have at times been focused on irrelevant or less relevant patterns instead of focusing on the important things. This is where I'm going to say something that I think is not going to make you happy. Next slide, please. One of the reasons Seventh-day Adventist Church was established was to prepare the world for the second coming of Satan. The storm that is coming is coming before the coming of Christ. The storm that is coming is when all the world appears to be following after the false Christ. Next slide. Great delusions will arise. Even Satan will disguise himself and appear as Christ. Next slide. False Christs and false prophets are going to appear and will produce great signs and wonders to, dismi 
to mislead, if it were possible, even God's own people. Next slide. If men are so easily misled now, how will they stand when Satan shall personate Christ and work miracles? Professing to be Christ when it is only Satan assuming the person of Christ and apparently working the works of Christ. I've had people tell me it's going to be easy. Christ's feet will never touch the earth. Christ will have the scars in his hands from on the cross. Do you really think Satan is not wise enough to impersonate those signs? Unless we know the character of God, the personality and character of Christ, the teachings of Christ, we will be misled. As I watch my family, my friends, my co-workers struggling now with where is truth? Is it on MSNBC or is it on Fox News? Is it on Breitbart or is it on CNN? As I watch them struggling with truth that is more clear to us than the deceptions that Satan are going to bring, I worry about our church. I worry that we have not focused our, our attention and our wisdom and our knowledge on the truth about Christ, that we may not be ready when the whole world appears to be following after a false Christ. And one of our jobs is to be preparing the world so that they too will not be deceived when the false Christ comes. Our job is to be warning of the storm that is coming and preparing the world to recognize it when it does come. And the only way to do that is to know the real character of Christ so that we'll be able to recognize the counterfeit by his false teachings. Next slide, please. Only those who have been diligent students of the scriptures will be shielded from the powerful delusion that takes the world captive. By the Bible testimony, these will detect and deceive the deceiver in his disguise. Next slide, please. This is an artist's rendition of a woman found in Greek legend. Her name is Cassandra. Cassandra lived in Troy, and she promised herself to the god Apollo. Apollo gave her a gift. Her gift was to be able to foretell the future. She could prophesy about what was going to come. She, however, drew away from Apollo and withheld herself from Apollo, and so Apollo, Apollo, in retaliation, could not take away the gift that he had given to her, but he added another gift to her ability to foretell the future. The gift that he gave her was she would still prophesy about the future, but nobody would ever believe her. Like wisdom in Proverbs 1, going among the group, going among the city, going among her friends, telling the truth, telling them what was coming, nobody believed. Cassandra was one who predicted that the Greeks were coming. She told them, do not take 
the Trojan horse into here. It will lead to our destruction. It did lead to their destruction, but nobody ever believed her. Next slide. Our job is to be those prophets, to be those teachers, those messengers, to tell the world what is coming, to let them know the wisdom that we have the, the fortune of having some influence and some sight into. It is our opportunity to not just keep that to ourselves, but to spend time learning about God, learning to know Him, and sharing that with those around us so that when the storm, when this storm does come, they will be ready. They will not be deceived. And we will all, hopefully, be reflecting the image of God to those around us so that the world truly does get a picture of wisdom.